Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Wes Woodbury, owner of Fundamental Games, an indie board game company where he designs and publishes games about his favorite theme, Epic Fantasy. With five successfully funded games on Kickstarter, he launched his sixth campaign, Questros, this week. Wes, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, James. Uh, it is great to have you. For those who are hearing this, who had already checked out our Facebook uh, live uh, interview, this is round two of this interview. Uh, the audio was uh, barely acceptable on Facebook, but for our, our, our audience who listens on the on the podcast, it's got to be clean. So I, Wes was very generous with his time. We're going to do another 30 minutes and uh, continue this talk. So Wes, for people that weren't part of that conversation, your, uh, your, your company, Fundamental Games, uh, you've done a series of campaigns uh, over the past couple of years. Can you take us through how you got into the board game industry in the first place? When did this all kind of start to begin and did you start getting kind of the inklings you want to get into game design? Yeah, I, uh, I got into game design. Well, actually, I got into gaming after I broke my legs in junior high. My brother introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons and books and uh, that world kind of took over my mind, that high fantasy, uh, magic and swords and dragons. Uh, so I've always loved that. And then getting into the actual board game thing didn't happen until about two years ago. Before then, I played a lot of Magic the Gathering, but really nothing else. Uh, but then I discovered Catan and some other games. And um, kind of like anybody who got sucked in by a gateway game, once you come in, you don't get out. As, so was it Catan? That was your gateway game? That was the gateway game, yeah. So it's interesting because it's almost like this kind of renaissance, right? For lack of a better word, where I think a lot of us had grown up with the monopolies, the risks, the yep, uh, game of life, right? Like all the kind of classic Scrabble, you know, basic Othello, basic games. And then, you know, you're right, you know, five, 10 years ago, Catan really, I think was kind of the one that has probably pulled a, a lot of people in. I know certainly uh, in our household, that was the one where we're like, whoa, board games are not just, you know, move your piece around. Just roll the dice and move your piece. Roll and move your dice around the board. There's actually decisions in strategy and yes, there's still luck. And I have my own thoughts on Catan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hint, it's banned from our household now <laughs> because right. we can't play without fighting. But what do you mean you won't trade with me? <laughs> oh God. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly uh, in, has informed my approach to game design. I don't know if it's a, informed your approach, but Every game me, I does informs in some way. Like you can learn something from any game. It's crazy. Have you ever found that you've taken like something that you just fundamentally didn't like about a game you played and thought, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm, I do the opposite of that for when I do a, that, a game. That's why I made my first board game. That, that is the story behind my first board game is hating something that much. And that was Munchkin. I, I, I went to the game store. My son and I were going to play Magic the Gathering. The tournament was canceled. They had free games to play on the shelf. So we thought, oh, let's try a different game. So we pull out Munchkin and I absolutely love the concept of playing D&D with cards, but I absolutely hate the concept of take that and the very simplicity. And I couldn't find another game quite like that. And that's where my first board game thought came. And, and I've been down this path ever since. So is that something you try to avoid? Like, like the plague is anything that has like a take that in it or? 
Yeah, I, I really dislike direct take that. I mean, in the Quisteros game that we'll talk about, there's a, a little bit of that because it is a trick-taking game. But uh, for the most part, I don't like things where you completely steal things from opponent or sabotage their entire rest of their game. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that's kind of why uh, Euro-style games uh, do so well, right? Uh, because you're kind of playing your own game and uh, everybody's kind of playing their own game. And, um, you know, you find out kind of who wins based on, on, on the skill. Yeah. Uh, the meanest, meanest thing that happens is you took that piece before me. How dare you? <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can do, you even look at something like Azul, right? And yeah. uh, I've got some family members that play that very much on the offense. <laughs> right, <laughs> so yeah. They're not playing their board. <laughs> yeah, they're not playing their board. They're playing your board, right? Yeah. So they're, they're playing to see what you can't get. But I, I, I get that because I, I can see like, um, especially in game design now for me, um, it's, it's very important that, um, you know, I, I've got kids that I, I play games with and I don't want them to have the same negative experiences that I had with board games when I was younger. I want them to have the positives that came with yeah. a lot of the board games I played, but any of the fights and disagreements and people getting upset and taking things personally, you know, I, I tried to avoid that in, in my game design or at least minimize it kind of what, uh, like, like you're saying here. Yeah. Um, so the, your first game then, so what was the name of that first game? Uh, well, the first game that I wanted to make was called Legends of Novus. The first game I did make was called Duel of Dragons. It was just a, a 50 card deck of cards so I could kind of break myself into Kickstarter, figure out how it all worked. And yeah. then I built Legends of Novus. So why did you do the one before the other one? Why did you do that before uh, Legends of Novus? Uh, some of the advice I'd read and, and I thought was good advice, and it's the same advice I give now, is that if you if you can make a game with constraints that is small, that you can produce quickly and figure out and actually make mistakes and not feel broken about it, then you can go, you can really develop yourself. So that's what that was about, is me making a game that maybe wasn't my first design, but I still had some fun building it and uh, creating a mechanic that I hadn't seen before and being able to take that from start to finish and actually say, you know what, I did this entire project. Now I feel capable and ready to move on to something bigger. So is that kind of like cutting your teeth, not only in, in game design and manufacturing, things like that, but even like the Kickstarter, I guess, like the whole the yeah, whole part exactly. of that was just cutting your teeth, right? Yeah, getting used to comments, getting used to the you know, pressing the launch button and knowing what happens after and even the fulfillment, I did the fulfillment myself. So learning some of the pains of international shipping and import fees and all that stuff. So that was it one of those things where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this next time. <laughs> or, uh, or did there, you say things you learn <laughs> like doing fulfillment myself. I did, it was only about 120 games for that. And I was like, uh, I don't even want to do hundred games myself again. So next time I'll get a fulfillment partner. So have you done that now going forward on most of your campaigns are going to use fulfillment partners or? Yeah, the one, the one I had with Novus, there's some things that I learned there about what you really have to make sure is in the contract and what you really have to make sure when you export files that you don't accidentally send them print and plays because that was a mistake. So oh each, each each campaign I did, I've learned something along the way. And have you mixed up like your, your manufacturers? Have you tried to use different manufacturers from campaign to campaign? Like have you experimented with different manufacturers or have you stuck yeah, with one yeah, or how's uh, that? Do, Duel of the Dragons, uh, again, one of the benefits of doing a small campaign is you can do it through print-on-demand. So I did that through drive-through cards. They make fantastic cards, tack boxes. So you can do your whole game yeah. with a, a small print-on-demand and say, I only want to make 100. When you get to a manufacturer in China, which is what I did with Novus, you have to hit a minimum order quantity. 
Uh, so for that one, I needed to fund my game to a thousand units to even make the minimum, which is still expensive. Um, so I went with them, but there's some quirks and there are some quality I didn't like. So for my next game, uh, my next big game, which was Die in the Dungeon, I used a different company called Hopes Games and they, they did some astronomical work with the standees and the boards and the finish of the box. And I love yeah. them so much that I, their costs were a lot lower too, so I think I'll be using them. I'm using them for Questeros, and I'll probably use them for future titles also. So I want to just kind of grab the little nugget of something you said there about uh, the minimums, because uh, I'm not sure a lot of uh, new developers know this, but when when most people do their Kickstarters, the math is usually based on funding all the inventory, yeah. right? So if you see uh, a Kickstarter campaign and uh, you see a game, you're like, well, that game could have been manufactured for you know half that price. Why is it so expensive? because that campaign has to fund that 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 minimum run there's no guarantee after that run arrives and all the kickstarter games are shipped out whatever's left over there's no guarantee you're not going to be sitting on those for 10 years <laughs> right so you got to slowly pick away at those and there's shipping costs and so forth so um unfortunately that's the way the math has to work right you have to make sure you cover off your minimums and um you know, that's one of the great things about Kickstarter is, you know, the margins are a little bit better so that it's not like a retail environment where you're having to um, maybe have much smaller margins and, uh, and and you have the bulk and the volume. Um, but, you know, the key is to make sure you do that math, you're covering off that uh, that minimum run. Absolutely. So when you launched uh, that game, it the first time it didn't, it didn't fund, right? So yeah. What was some of the thought process you went through um, before relaunching? So, how long did it take you before you decide, okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna launch again? Like, what was that the lag time? Yeah, even, even when I was ending, I ended it the day before the campaign was supposed to end, just so it didn't say unfunded; it said canceled instead. But uh, yeah, uh, I went with a three month strategy and kind of built some concepts into what I wanted to do to make sure it was ready three months from now to press the button again. And then what were some of the things that you think caused it to fail um, versus it being super successful? Because the second time, if people don't know, you reached almost $37,000, 682 backers. That is a great campaign, right? Um, especially for your second one in after just doing kind of a small campaign, campaign before that. Um, what was the fundamental difference between those two campaigns? Yep, uh, the, the biggest difference was the graphic design and layout of the page, just trying to work with um, the artists that I had and figure out ways to carve out some of the images to actually be on the page. I never thought about that so much the first time around. And, and just like somebody that wants to pick up a book and read it or a magazine and read it, you're attracted by the cover, you're attracted by what you scroll through. And the longer you can capture somebody's attention as they're scrolling, whether it's through, it's through a GIF or through a picture or through um, enticing text or images, the more likely they are to back it. So graphic design was one thing. And then the second part was making a, a nicer prototype and getting additional reviews done on a nearly finished product instead of just a, a rough draft with some some random pieces or my, my best assemblage that I could at the time. Uh, I was really cheap the first time and I, I invested in a better prototype that I sent to three different previewers for that second campaign. I think it's interesting when um... Like, I think it was maybe Jellop, who's a, a social media amplification company, much like BackerKit uh, that yep, I think yep. you're using for your campaign. I use for my campaign. Um, I mean, th there are several really good ones, um, but they all have these. One of the great things that come along with some of these uh, companies, the social media amplification companies, is they give you advice based on what their data shows, right? And I think I saw a stat somewhere that said like campaigns that have 
uh, at least three gifts uh, in them perform better than ones that don't. Um, you know, you want to have at least a couple videos in there, whether it be a preview video or a review video. Um, yeah. Your main campaign video, you have to have a main campaign video. Now, some people think that you have to go and maybe spend thousands of dollars on that. And I think there's been some uh, great examples of that's not necessarily the case. I think it has to be engaging and enticing in a way. Great example I like to give is uh, Tanner Yarrow did one on his most recent campaign, which hit a half million dollars, by the way. Yeah. Um, it was him coming in pretending like they had made up like this kind of fake back end of a horse. So he comes in without a shirt on like he's like a, a minotaur and there's people on that couch and he's interrupting the board game and he's there and, and you know, they had created some fake smoke and so forth to try to create the ambiance. It was cheesy as hell, but yeah. you know what? It makes you laugh. And so I think that if there's anybody out there who is looking at cutting their teeth and doing a campaign for the first time. You have to have a video, very, very important. You don't necessarily need to spend a ton of money on it uh, when you're doing, um, you know, these these smaller size uh, campaigns when you're starting. How yeah, important- and, and, and don't overdo the video. Like some people will do their first campaign and it'll be like a seven minute video with, you know, five minutes explaining the whole game and every step. Yeah. Uh, and that's just too much, right? Yeah, it's interesting when you say that because I think of like uh, what I call them the trailer videos, right? Yeah. Where the person's like, dun, 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 dun. You got the heavy music and then words keep coming across the screen and more words and more words and you know, an epic journey and blah, blah, blah. And you're like two minutes and you're like, what is this game about? I, I have no idea what this game is about. Get to what the game is about, like in the first minute, if you can, and, and tag kind of the ambience on, on the end if, uh, if possible. Well, and some, some of them do it really, really well. If you watch uh, Frostpunk did it really well, where oh, yeah. they started with a story and then about 20 seconds in, the story was still there, but it was with the game components and you could, you could, meld the two together. They did a really good yeah. for Frostpunks. Wanderer's Guide is another good example of that. I was interviewing um, uh, the, the team that did that. And I, I gave him props in their video. I said, you know, this, like, I, I think I clocked it 50 in 50 seconds. It, it was very concise of what his campaign was about. And yeah. then he had, he had like a two minute, a two minute video. So he tagged on kind of the story on the end, but he did story like you're saying, sandwiched it almost right. But yeah, yeah. got right to the guts of what it was about. So that was, that was pretty cool. So you've had Duel of Dragons, Legends of Novus, Legends of Novus expansion, Deco Dice, and then Die in the Dungeon. And I think that that's probably what people know you the most uh, for. I mean, that was an incredibly successful campaign. Did almost $74,000, 1,282 backers. I mean, that was just awesome. You guys must be really proud coming off that campaign this past year. Yeah, that one had some fantastic artwork by Tristan and it kind of reached a broader range than my previous titles because uh, it had some fun and humor, so it looks more lighthearted. And it was launched in a year when we were just getting into some of this, the scarcity of, of the pandemic. So a solo game when the pandemic was rising kind of worked out well. Yeah, it's crazy. Did you say it was Tristan that did it? Tristan Rawson, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we had him on the podcast, actually. Uh, we were talking about his pod and... Uh, very, very talented artist. Um, so let's jump into uh, Questros. So that's that's the, the 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 meat on the bone here. So let's talk about this. I'm going to share the screen here uh, for people who are actually watching the video. So take us through what Questros is. And I just want to say this. Uh, one really cool thing at the beginning is when you see the name of the game, if you turn that upside down, it's, it says Questros no matter which way you kind of flip that name, which is really cool. Yeah, so Questeros, it's a multi-purpose deck. The, the main purpose is a 
two to six player multi or multiplayer trick-taking card game. That's kind of the original concept of it, but then it, it evolved into a few different things. Uh, decided to make the artwork unique on every single card and match up with traditional tarot decks. So it's a fully functional tarot deck. And then there's a separate game in there called Eros Quest. If you actually reorganize the letters of Questeros, it spells Eros Quest. And that's ah. the solitaire game. Uh, so the solitaire game is completely different using different uh, mechanics and functionality of all the cards based on the story of the, uh, the Fool's Journey using the Jester in my deck. And then the fourth concept is the fact that it can be used for RPG games as a fate deck, similar to a tarot deck, but for your characters in a role-playing game. And then the kind of fifth functionality that's down the road, uh, and it's not even been released on this page, so you're getting a special preview to it, is um, if you've ever heard of the deck of many things for a game like D&D, I'm building a whole PDF that's just linked to my deck uh, for a deck of fate for Questeros. It's like a Ginsu knife, but wait, there's more. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it and just then, keeps coming. <laughs> I'm no Steve Jobs, but you know. Yeah. Can you give a shout out to the, the, the gifts you've got on this, uh, this page are phenomenal. They are super smooth, which is not typical uh, for a Kickstarter page because Kickstarter uh, compresses everything that you upload it. Trust me from experience, I've put up some pretty slick GIFs into Kickstarter. And by the time you see them compress them, what you end up seeing is usually downgraded in resolution, usually grainy, usually choppy. You've got some really, really beautiful animated GIFs on this uh, page. So who did that for Did you do this or did you have somebody do the, the GIFs for you or... Uh, the, the choppy looking gifts are mine. So those are the ones that just rotate the cards around and around. The good looking gifts are done by Misa Game Labs and they have, uh, they've done all kinds of different, uh, Kickstarters now and they just take whatever artwork you have and card images you have and they've got their own system to put it all together and make it look as awesome as they did. Uh, the juggling one at the very beginning, yeah, the cool. goblin juggling, uh, that was done just with the two dimensional card art that I gave them and they kind of cut and figure it out and. They, they, they did exactly what I asked for. I said, I want to see this guy juggling what's in his hands. And they, they made it happen. It is crazy cool. I, I love it. It is, it is awesome. So like a five in one game is kind of unheard of. Is this something that was kind of a mission from the beginning? Or what, what got you to think, I'm not just going to launch a tarot deck. Or I'm not just going to launch a solo game. Or I'm not do a trick taping game. Like what gave you the idea to say, you know what, I'm going to create different functionalities in this? Yeah, in all the games that I make, I try to find a way to cross paths or introduce things that I haven't seen before. So when I did Duel of the Dragons, even though it was my first little game, I hadn't seen a game that layered cards the way I did with that one. When I did uh, Legends of Novus, I wanted to make D&D in one session where you, you go from a level zero hero to a level 20 hero in an hour. And I hadn't seen that done, so that you do that in that game. Uh, with Die in the Dungeon, I wanted you to be able to play as the boss monster and use dice as stats, something I hadn't seen before, and um, also be solitary game. And in this one, I wanted to be able to cross, uh, turn a, um, a trick-taking game, which I love games like Wizard or Euchre or Hearts or all those different games. I love those games, but I hadn't seen one done well in a fantasy setting. Uh, so I wanted to make a trick-taking game with fantasy, but then I figured when I was doing research for a fantasy game, I discovered that tarot was originally a trick-taking game before it became a divination tool. And I thought, well, tarot is kind of the perfect environment for fantasy because I can turn what I see in these awesome tarot cards and apply fantasy art and, and kind of cross that. And, and that was where that came to be. I never knew that. So w when did kind of tarot 
readings kind of come about though like with with this kind of a deck is this something that's like in this this most recent century or uh tarot so i think and don't quote me 100 <laughs> percent. My, my memory is fading but uh, i think it was around the 17th century or something that tarot was created and it wasn't until a couple hundred years later where it became a divination tool so but we only recognize that in the more modern era yeah um, but they still play it uh, over in Italy and in Europe and different places, they still play Tarocci or whatever the phrase is. And so, and, and in terms of unique art, is it 78 pieces of unique? I know 78 cards, but how many pieces of unique artwork do you have in this game? 78 pieces of unique art, and they're directly related to the Rider weight Tarot deck. So if you see the Fool in Rider weight, you're going to see the similar iconography of the uh, the guy stepping off the cliff, the mountains in the background, the okay. hyenas, the dog. Every single card relates to the Rider weight. So anybody that's familiar with tarot, you will see all of the elements in the Quest Arrows deck. The only thing that's changed, well, not the only thing, but the, the main thing that's changed is I renamed all of the major arcana so that it relates more to the world of Quest Arrows. How long did it take you to develop this game? Because you got to imagine even just the sheer amount of unique art pieces you have would take you know, quite some time to put together. Uh, I, I tend to go all in when I think of a design. So somebody that might design a game over the course of two years, spending, you know, an hour every other day on it or something, I tend to spend more time than I probably should, more time than is healthy. So this one we evolved over the course of the last nine months. I, I, the, the idea inspired me about a month before I launched Die in the Dungeon. So I was already creating Die in the Dungeon and ready to launch that. And sometimes you just, you know, you get that, that strike of lightning and, and think of a game and you just run with it. And so I've been at this for nine months. John came on board about two months later and he's been heavy into the art ever since. That's, that's a pretty fast turnaround though, right? Like less than a year to take it from, I got this idea to let's, uh, let's crank this thing out and uh, commercialize it. Yeah, I mean, the play testing was was really easy for solitaire game because I can play that over and over and sure. send it out as a PNP. Uh, the, the multiplayer game, because I was basing it on many trick-taking games that I was already familiar with, the foundation of the game was there. But what this game does is it layers on abilities. Mm. So whatever cards are, you know, the word trump, but the highest rank cards, they also have abilities that you don't normally see in a trick-taking game. So it adds another level to it. And those, those abilities are fantasy-related. So uh, like an assassin uh, getting rid of a card or uh, a wizard letting you cycle through your deck. So one thing that I, I like my my niece who's in her 30s, she does uh, Terracot uh, readings. She does like Terra Tuesdays on her YouTube channel. Uh, yeah. So I've actually backed this game, uh, and I'm going to give it to her as a as a as a gift for Christmas. So she's, she's going to watch it. She's watching. She's going to see what she's going to know what her Christmas present is. But uh, that being said, um, one thing I, I've kind of learned is that Tarot uh, for readers can be very personal. Like they, they it almost becomes like. Um, uh, you know, part of their their style and so forth. Is that something that uh, that you've kind of seen in your research with with tarot as well? Or yeah, I mean, some people do tarot readings for money and they become certified and do yeah. all kinds of things. Um, this isn't intended for that purpose. This is more of a way to as a form of entertainment. So even myself, uh, I did a video on it saying, you know, what's the future of fundamental games? And one of the most common spreads is a past, present, future, or another one is a start, stop. Uh, continue uh, or start yeah stop start continue yeah. or stop continue start whatever phrase it is but you just pick three cards and they have meanings and um, you can kind of it, it helps you get some introspective thinking into what's happened in your life and and you might not even think of these things if you didn't put a couple cards on the table it doesn't mean it actually means anything in the long run but it can be fun to just think about those things as you look at a set of cards 
Yeah, it doesn't mean you're worshiping the devil, right? Like you got yeah. a devil card there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the occult. This is like sim symbolic of something, right? As you're kind of telling a story or, or predicting things and, and so forth, right? Yeah, like the, the death card, which is the death knight in my deck. Yeah. It doesn't mean that somebody's going to die. It might mean that there's a big change coming and that something that you're used to doing is going to be done in different ways. Like you don't have to think of it in terms of absolutes. Yeah. Did you do a lot of research into like how much about tarot did you know prior to doing this game? Like obviously there's the card size, I think is what you said would uh, kind of trophy kind of this direction in the first place. But how much did you know about kind of tarot readings and so forth before this? I didn't know anything about tarot. You know, <laughs> I ne I've never owned a tarot deck. I've never owned a tarot book. Uh, yeah. But again, like I said, when I when I want to do something, I then spend obscene amounts of times trying to figure things out. So I, I read about every single card in the deck, and anytime I designed art for the deck, I had the reference material, both the meanings and the art, as yeah. I was designing the concept. Then I'd send that to John, and he would draw it, and then I'd say, no, no, uh, that icon has to be there, and that water has to be swirling, because that's what the meaning on the card is. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, so we work together, and really there's a lot of meaning in every single card in the deck. Uh, so that's what takes the most time. The trick-taking card game, that was easy. The, the solitaire game, that took a bit of extra thought trying to figure out how to make that work. But the, the hardest part really was getting the art right. So you've been, um, for lack of a better word, a serial board game designer. Uh, it looks like Fundamental Games is going to be around for a while, cranking out a lot of games. Do you have anything else? I'm sure you got another game coming. Like what, what's, what's coming on the heels of this? Yeah, there's, uh, I try not to put too many titles into my back burner at once. Some people have like 100 game designs in a book. Yeah. I have usually one, two maximum. So there's one I worked on for a couple of years. It's just sitting, I'm not ready for that one. I don't, um, the one I, I think I want to do next is called Master of Meatballs. That's my working title, where it's kind of related to an old video game called Master of Monsters. It's kind of partial area control and partial um, kind of decimate your opponent, but without rolling dice and without random card draws mm. it's all strategy control game and i'm sure the the meeples themselves in this game is going to be something clever you're going to come up with on that i guess eh? yeah like a, a meeple of a, a dragon with a broken wing you know silk screen a meeple of a, a beholder with uh, an ancient beholder so some different fantasy very relatable images to anybody that's been involved with D or high fantasy and how quickly are you going to have that game come out? Is this something that you're working on, you know, for the back end of this year or you know, maybe next year? What kind of what's your timetable for your your game design uh, and launching? I've, I've, I've already got an online tabletop simulator prototype that I'm working on, so that's oh, kind cool. of my own personal way to play because then I can change it as much as I want without having to redraw the cards or everything. And I can actually make the meeples on the screen. I have to be involved in the process, so I need to see. It. And that's what helps inspire me. So that's already in the works. But as for it actually being available to the public or Kickstarter, I'm thinking probably uh, this time next year, if, if I'm lucky. That's one thing that we're seeing a lot more of now since COVID hit is people just using Tabletop Simulator, not only to play games with, uh, you know, friends, family that are remote and now that they can't meet physically up with, uh, yeah. but even game designers, right? The iteration process is so much quicker uh with with tabletop simulator where you just literally upload your, your artwork and it's refreshed right so unlike the old days where you have to print it and cut it and sleeve it and all this kind of stuff so has that been really a, a key to you with your your development in terms of speed of development and iterative process yeah it's the number one way that i can play test with complete strangers because there's <laughs> yeah. not really conventions and there's not really gatherings at least um in in the near 
future. So I use it for that. But also, again, to quickly shift gears, you know, I needed 20 meeples, now I need 40. Well, I don't have to go and cut 40 more meeples. I can just copy and paste and I'm yeah. done in 10 seconds. So it's really useful that way. Sometimes you might design over design because it's so easy. But uh, yeah, it, it, I think it's a, a fantastic resource anyway. And it's really good for screenshots if you want to send people concepts too. It's like, hey, what do you think of this? Oh, you don't like it? Okay, delete, delete. What do you think of this? <laughs> Even talking about videos, there's a good example. I saw somebody that did a uh, Kickstarter video uh, using Tabletop Simulator. Yeah, one so of the just... gifts on my page is from Tabletop Simulator. The one with the tokens, that was okay. made on Tabletop Simulator. Oh, no so kidding. You, you put your tokens in, have a white table, you record your video, I use OBS, take that video, go into Easy GIF, turn it into a GIF. So in a matter of you know 30 minutes, you can make your own GIF using Tabletop Simulator. That's crazy. <laughs> it's not as high quality as the Misa one, but it, it's her, it works. It looks, it looks good, right? Again, it's just having that motion and stuff. I think that is uh, that is key. So, if people want to follow your your pro, like your journey, if they want to follow kind of the the games that are coming down the pipe, or if they want to get involved in some of the, the uh, maybe the groups that are playing some of your prior games, how how best do they do that? Yeah, I'm all over all different Facebook groups, Board Game Design Lab, Tabletop Kickstarter Advice. Uh, you can join my groups as well or find me on the Fundamental Games on Facebook. Or um, I have my own podcast as well, Kickstarter Journeys. You can listen to discussions like this with other designers and all over the place. If you haven't heard of my name, then I'm not doing, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> and you can find that on uh, just wherever you get your your your, your podcast, wherever you download podcasts. Yeah, you can th search there's uh, eight major servers. I know Apple, Spotify; those are two of them. Anyway, oh, awesome. uh, I built I build it on Anchor, but it goes to those other platforms. Oh, that's fantastic. Maybe what we'll do is we'll drop a link in the show notes so people can find it easy. Uh, likewise, uh, Questros. If uh, this is a game that interests anybody and you want to back it, like I did. Um, I'll put it in the show notes as well. And, uh, or you just quite frankly, go over to Kickstarter and just type in Questros with a Q. Uh, you'll find it uh, quite easily. So Wes, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, it's been a joy to talk with you and uh, I wish you all the best of luck with this campaign. You take care. Awesome. Thanks for having me and hope to have you maybe on a Kickstarter journey. <laughs> Sounds good. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.